0: Well, good morning again. I think I've said it several times. We are pleased that you're here with us. Uh, I have several reasons and a few purposes for looking at Psalm 2 today. So if you want to start turning there, the first is that the last time I shared with you from the pulpit, we were looking at Psalm 22 together, and in that Psalm, we saw our Lord crucified we saw his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and finally his return. And at the end of that uh, sermon, um, I referenced Psalm 2, and that Jesus uh, was going to be the Lord and King setting up his rule over the nations. In fact, verse 27 of Psalm 22 said, uh, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And because I then referenced Psalm 2, uh, I really didn't have much time to go over uh, it. I think I may have given it to you for homework, Um, but today I'd like to turn our attention to that psalm this morning, so... uh, continue to turn there or open it on your app. Now, Psalm 2 is a short psalm, but it is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in the New Testament, up to 18 times. And this is a song. Remember, uh, the verses and chapter headings were all added later. So this is really a song that had four stanzas or four sections. We would call them verses, but that confuses the issue a little bit. Each section has a different person speaking. See if you can identify who is speaking in each section of the psalm as we read it together. But in honor of God's word, would you please stand and read it with me? Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today i have fathered you and ask it of me and i will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron you shall shatter them like earthenware now then you kings use insight let yourselves be instructed you judges of the earth serve the lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling Kiss the son that he may not be angry, and you perish on the way, for his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you. Be seated. And would you pray with me one more time? Father, um, Holy Spirit, as we look at the words that you inspired in the author of this psalm, Use them to teach us what we need to know today. Transform our lives, open the eyes of our heart that we might see these spiritual truths. Father, the the words that I think you have prepared me to give today, uh, may they dwindle in comparison to the, the word of God. And may it just cause us to, to be in awe of how great you are this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the dangers um, that we must guard against is our sense of familiarity with the Almighty Triune God. Now, by his grace, he allows us to call him Abba, Father. We are pr- taught to pray our father who art in heaven christ calls us brethren we are brothers and sisters and co-heirs in jesus christ on the other hand let's not forget he is the king of kings and lord of lords robed in majesty but today the world has mostly forgotten god and as a result Let's look at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? Your translation may say the nations are restless or turmoil. They're in an uproar. This this word for, for restless is a Hebrew word that has a picture of rising up turmoil, confusion, or destruction. Again, this is another word that really pictures rebellion. And when people rebel against God and sin, their lives become restless. Their lives tumble into turmoil. And as evidenced by today, rage wells up inside. Life and rebellion against God generally does not work. Gail shared with me a headline this week that suicides are at a greater level than they were during COVID. And the same thing is true with nations. When nations rebel against God, they become restless. They head to turmoil and hopelessness. Not only are they rebelling, but the peoples are plotting in vain. Of course, vain means uselessly, an empty scheme. Now, in history, it seems like There's never been a time like we live in today, or now, when the rulers from all over the earth get together and plot their schemes. But nothing is really new. The history of mankind is one of rage and rebellion against God. In Noah's day, men were thinking of doing evil continually. Man disobeyed God before he confused their languages in israel's history if you remember during the time of the judges we see how they continually returned to doing what was right in their own eyes the nation of israel continually made alliances and conspired with other nations rather than turning to god but today the news reports the rulers are plotting in vain There's the G7, the G20 conferences, or the U.N., the World Economic Forum, which now openly states that we have to move to a more sustainable future. Now, those are nice-sounding words, but what they really are saying is that the world population should be 2 billion people. If the world population is 9 billion people now, they think that 7 billion people need to disappear, but in a humane way, of course. Um, We do a good job of not focusing on, on politics here, but our vice president this week said, quote, when we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. God's word describes this type of thinking. When comparing godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, James writes in chapter three, verse 15, that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because God is not their Lord and master, they're not neutral their master, their father, is the father of lies, Satan. And their plans are evil, plotting and conniving against the true king of kings and against his anointed, the Messiah Jesus. If you remember last week's sermon in Ephesians where Paul reminds us that we too once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, but we've been rescued, but those who have not been rescued still walk according to the prince of the power of the air. So they're, they're plotting in vain. Look at verse 3. They want to throw the bonds and fetters apart and cast away their cords or their ropes from us. I had said earlier and asked you to see if you could find the different voices uh, that are in this psalm. In this, we see the first voice, and what we hear is the voice of man. The ruler is saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. They want to be unbounded by what they perceive as the ropes or shackles or cords holding them back. Now, this is an old and ancient Philosophy, but it's been popularized in our modern world, starting with the French Revolution. The idea was that society or culture is holding you back from truly being free to express yourself and your inner feelings. To really be true to oneself, they said, you had to throw off the limitations of a civil society, you have to throw off the bonds of Christian morality. And today, that also means you have to throw off the structure of the family and government laws. Anarchy and rebellion are the result as people want to live a sinful life, free from the moral bounds, free from guilt and shame. So today, mankind wants to throw off the bonds of the family. They want to throw off the bonds of of the definition of, of a marriage between a man and a woman, They want to throw off the bonds that define gender as being male and female. They want to throw off the bonds of when life begins. As we consider what's going on in our world today, the question you might be asking yourself as his children is God, how long are you going to let this happen? Sort of the same question of where is God in the midst of evil and suffering? Where was God during the Holocaust? Where is God when there's a natural disaster? We have to be careful because this question is sort of accusatory in nature, blaming God and, and of, accusing Him of being immoral. And the answer is really simple, but the question also misses the key point. God is right where He has always been, in heaven on His throne. And Christ, after being absent from heaven for 33 years when he took on flesh, is again seated at his right hand. The question isn't, where was God? That's not the right question. The right question is, who is God? He is still the unchangeable God who is all-knowing, loving, patient, and kind, but also holy and just, and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. But this sort of brings, might bring up another question in our mind. Um, okay, Jesus, what, what are you doing today? Could you please let us a little know of what your plan is so that we can uh, have some hope? After all, you said in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given unto you. We might feel a little like my granddaughter. Um, when one day we were reading a book together, she was... Uh, fairly young and just learning to read so she had me read her favorite book but being a teacher and um, I wanted to make sure she wasn't uh, that she was reading along with me and hadn't memorized every word of the book they, they, they like to do that right so I would change a word every once in a while and that made her frustrated she would cry stop it Papa!" But I went a little too far, and she got exasperated, and she turned to Nana and said, Can't you do something with him? To which Gail replied, No. (laughs) Maybe not feeling like my granddaughter. You may feel like the uh, psalmist, Aspha, saying, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant When I saw their prosperity, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase their riches, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean. Or you may feel like one of the Old Testament prophets saying, God, are you really going to use the Babylonians to judge your people Israel? But the Bible gives us the answers. The answer to the question, Jesus, what are you doing today? Um, We we know you're in control. So we we turn back to Ephesians 1. If we we go back, we've been in Ephesians as Chris has been taking us through. I remind you of Paul's prayer. We, We have a wonderful. Full picture of Christ raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but the age to come now if you go back in chapter 1 in Ephesians to verse 10 we see we see an interesting verse we see that God has a purpose which he has set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time Other translations say, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. So as I research and understand these phrases, Jesus is on the throne administrating God's plan. And the fullness of time can be understood as seasons. So think of uh, the different seasons that crops grow through. Christ is administrating these different seasons of history to bring about the plan which is the summing up of all things in Christ. But for his reasons which are right and good and which he hasn't shared with us, but while maintaining his authority, he has given Satan during this season and time permission to deceive and devour. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, says uh, uh, Satan is called the God of this world, and he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In John 12.31, John 14.30, and John 16.11, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 6, we are instructed to put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, according to Peter 5.8. And John writing in 1 John 5.19 states that the whole world lies in his power. So now, today Jesus is in heaven. He is in authority. But God's plan, it seems for now, is to allow Satan to have authority on the earth. But this will come to an end. Turn with me to Revelations 11.15. I'd like you to see that this morning. Revelation 11.15. It says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The seventh angel blew his trumpet we heard the loud voices, and this is the proclamation God takes back the kingdom of the world from Satan at the seventh trumpet. In a little while longer, God will bind Satan and throw him into the pit for a thousand years. Knowing this is the plan, therefore, if you go back to Psalm 22, you can look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Man can scheme, man can plan, but it's God's plan, and nothing can thwart it. That's why all their plotting is in vain. This also implies that God sees what's going on. He knows their're scheming. He knows their planning. He knows their thoughts. He knows every intention of their wicked ideas and schemes. He knows that their schemes are vain and useless. Continuing in Psalm 22, verse 5, it says, Then then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So this is the second voice we hear in Psalm 22, the voice of God. Notice that... Before the kingdom is established, there is a period of God's wrath. Psalm 46, stating in verse 6, says, The nations rage. So Psalm 46, just like Psalm 2, the nations are in rage, they're in turmoil. But the psalmist continues that the kingdoms totter because he utters his voice and the earth melts. Verse 6 of Psalm 46 Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. In Matthew 24, as Jesus describes the end of history to the disciples in the Olivet Discourse, just a couple days before he's going to the cross, he states there will be wars. As nations rise against nations, famines and earthquakes in various places, false prophets will arise and lawlessness will increase. Then... There will be great tribulation such as it has not been from the beginning of the world until now. Then Matthew records Jesus, who said that immediately after the tribulation, after that wrath, and the sun being darkened and the heavens shaking, then of the Son of Man, who is Jesus, will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 writes, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And the same is recorded in in Revelation. The kingdom, if you remember that verse, the kingdom is handed over to Christ at the seventh trumpet, which means God has poured out his wrath for the seven sealed judgments and six of the previous trumpet judgments. So this is one point I'm trying to make today. And this is a little warning from an elder um, who loves you and is trying to look out for wolves that might harm the flock. We have some very sincere brothers and sisters in the Lord who have been given the gift of faith, we believe, who see things differently when it comes to their understanding of the end time events. And this view has been gaining... uh, quite a bit more acceptance lately. As they look at the scriptures, they think that Satan has already been bound, that we are living in a millennial kingdom, and that over time the church will be successful. There might be ups and downs, but over time the church will be successful in converting the world, and when most of the world is Christian, then Christ will come. Uh, They believe in the coming of the kingdom, just like we do, but how we get there is very different, and as an elder, I'm, I'm watching this, I'm concerned. Uh, we we want to be generous with our brothers and sisters, uh, but we have to be very careful. At the root of the issue is an important matter that you need to remember for your personal study. Uh, having been a college professor, I knew my students didn't remember my lectures very long, It's what you learn, what you study as you get into the Word and and seek it out. And when you do that, how we interpret Scripture is a a fancy church word we call hermeneutics. It's how we approach Scripture and understand the Scriptures. And when it comes to prophecy, like we have here in Psalms 2 or Psalms 22, um, there are those who use what's called the allegorical approach, believing that beneath the surface, beneath the letter of the words of the obvious meaning, that there's some deeper meaning of the passage, some spiritual meaning, some real meaning. We at uh, at Grace like to emphasize, and what I'm trying to emphasize to you as you study your word, uh, the literal method of interpretation, which gives each word the same exact basic meaning it would have in a in a normal, ordinary, customary usage. Uh, when I say literal, uh, I often like to say the plain meaning, because people use that word literal kind of as a derogatory uh, phrase or, or label. And what I mean that by that is when we look in the scriptures and we see history, we read it as history. When we see poetry, we read it as poetry. When we see symbol or symbolic language, we read it that way, as symbols or as symbolic. But we also let the Scripture tell us what those symbols mean. And the Scripture does a great job of always telling us what those symbols mean. So this, uh, you might hear, called the historical grammatical approach. And as Dr. Cooper and many other teachers have repeated, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. What I've tried to show you is that the plain understanding of the Scriptures is that for now, God is allowing Satan to be the ruler of this world, but one day God will pour out his wrath on a sin-filled and rebellious world and then Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. Then we get to verse six. And let's find out the location of this kingdom. God says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And in preparation, I try to listen to some other sermons. And Even pastors who would agree with us in our hermeneutics, in our method of interpretation, say that on Zion, my holy hill means heaven. But what's the plain sense of the text? The plain sense of the text is that the kingdom will be established in Jerusalem. This is not just a heavenly kingdom, but an earthly kingdom. In Zechariah 14.9, it says that the Lord will be king over all the earth. Of course, this could be accomplished from heaven, but then why didn't the author say that he would be the king over all the heavens and the earth? Better yet, let me give you a better one. Daniel 9.16, Daniel prays and asks God to turn away his wrath from Jerusalem, your holy hill. Clarification comes from Zechariah 14.16, which tells us that everyone who survives the tribulation of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, so in the end, all these nations are going to come against Jerusalem, they shall go up year after year to worship the king of hosts. They're going up to Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesied that a child will be born unto us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He also tells us in chapter 24, verse 23, that the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. It's it's, it's in these prophecies and many more uh, uh, about the coming kingdom that had the disciples all excited the disciples were, were wondering, Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Are you going to do it right now? Even after his death and resurrection, the disciples thought he would establish his kingdom. In Acts 1, 6, they kept asking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Not quite yet. Let's go back to Psalm 2, verse 8 even though this is in the next section, it says, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is not a spiritual kingdom. This is not symbolic. This is a literal kingdom physically present on the earth. So let's look at the next section. And we have a new voice speaking. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree "'The Lord God said to me.'" So now God said something to someone, and and that person is repeating what God said to them. So this section must be Jesus. He is telling us that God has said to him, "'You are my begotten son.'" In verse 8, God tells Jesus, "'Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance "'and the ends of the earth as your possession.'" Remember, Satan tried to offer it to him in the temptation in the wilderness. But it wasn't quite Satan's position to be able to offer it all. And then God tells Jesus about how he will rule as king. You shall break them, the nations, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow. This is some... Rule. Isaiah 11 tells us He, Jesus, will not judge by what He sees or decide disputes by what His ears hear, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Christ's rule will be absolute. Every command obeyed. Now, in our earthly perspective, we might think this is a bad thing, because when we think of earthly kingdoms ruled by absolute authorities, we don't see much good come from that, do we? But Jesus is not like any human being. He's the absolutely beautiful, perfect, righteous, faithful, and just king. There will be no more tear justice systems. Every judgment will be perfect. No more war. No more learning of war. Weapons will be beaten into plowshares. This kingdom is going to be amazing. Now, let me read a quote from J.I. Packer in the book, Knowing God. It's We've been going through this in our adult Sunday school. Um, today's message kind of very much dovetails with the lesson that we had this morning. But J.I. Packer says this, quote, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, and a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power, but God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We will never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards them. The Bible never lets us lose sight of His majesty and His unlimited dominion over all His creatures. So to remember His majesty and His unlimited dominion over us and His creatures was one of my other purposes this morning. Jesus will be king in Jerusalem. He will will be ruling with absolute authority after the wrath of God is poured out and the nations broken. The rebellious leaders and nations trying to throw off the bonds of God, the bonds of definition of family, when life begins, all these things that men are trying to cast off, they will be brought to justice by a holy God. So what is our response? The psalmist helps us out there. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Someone else is speaking now. And he's telling them, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, be wise, take warning, be warned, O rulers, judges of the earth. So, Dr. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, states that this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving warning. He's given Conviction. He's speaking out. And first he tells us, hey, you need to be wise. Now this warning in the verse is given to kings and rulers of the earth, but we should be wise as well. And our wisdom should cause us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and worship the Son. Yes, the triune God loves us. He loves you. God Has mercy and grace, but he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he deserves our reverence. He deserves our humility. He is the King, not Santa Claus, not a cosmic genie. He's not here to fulfill all your desires and wishes. Rather, he fully deserves our service and obedience. But the great news is with God, this service and obedience will be full of joy and our obedience and service will be wrapped up in delight and His glory. When it says that we should kiss the sun, it's a way of saying we need to love and worship Jesus. And we love Him because He first loved us. How did He love us? For God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the invitation of the last phrase of our psalm today. Look at that last phrase. Blessed are you who take refuge in him. Grace is being extended to you. The Spirit is calling you and saying that you can escape that wrath that's coming, and the only way to escape it is to place your trust and seek refuge in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other refuge. There's no other way. Otherwise, you will perish. Now, this is an application for those who have not placed their trust in God or in Christ, For those of you who have placed your trust in Christ, there are many other applications when considering this prophetic psalm. The Bible describes many benefits for studying and understanding of prophecy, benefits in the area of Christian character, or benefits in the area of Christian duties. To close today, I'd like to just share three of those benefits for you. The first is joyfulness. 1 Peter 1, 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So we don't see God's promises now. Those promises are for the future. We don't see our promised resurrection. We don't see our eternal life. We don't see heaven, but we believe in them, don't we? We, we We don't see this promised kingdom in Psalm 2 now, but by faith we believe that it will come, and because we know it is going to come, we can greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. We can have joy knowing that our inheritance is sure, and as the things of this earth pass away, as the things of this earth rust and decay, this kingdom to come is going to be eternal, and it will never decay. The second benefit is watchfulness. This is supposed to characterize our Christian living, our character now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Knowing that the King is coming, his returning should cause us to live rightly knowing that we are aliens in this world and that our home is really in heaven in this kingdom knowing that our treasure is really there should cause us to be different than the world it it should cause us to consider how we live and act in the light of the coming kingdom of god and we're looking for that at any moment watchfulness we need to be watchful and with this watchfulness and anticipation The other side of that is patience. James 5, 7, 8, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. James write, "'Therefore be patient, brethren, "'until the coming of our Lord. "'And you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, "'for the coming of the Lord is near.'" So even these first apostles were continually looking for the the coming of the Lord, eagerly awaiting his imminent return. And likewise, we should look for the coming of kingdom. But being patient at the same time, patient with, being patient without worry, being patient without being envious of the wicked, being patient thinking, hey, God, they're, they're getting away with this. Because they're not. We can be patient with hope in a world that doesn't have any hope.